Well, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5. Full disclosure, um, I have spent so much time this week trying my best to see if I can get two chapters boiled down into kind of one singular focus point, and I've struggled with it. So if this sermon comes across a little bit discombobulated, that's probably why. But bear with me, I think at the end I can kind of land the plane in a singular point, but i got to get through two chapters to get us there. By the way, we'll take our time. We won't take forever in reading them. I'm going to summarize a lot. But Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Uh, kind of through this summer, we, we've been looking at the biblical narrative of Daniel and the example in regards of living in what we're calling exile. Learning to embrace the idea that what we value as Jesus followers is often not what the culture values outside of Jesus. That the things that we consider true and right sometimes totally disaligns with what the culture considers true and right. So how do we live in a world like that? And the first six chapters of Daniel is dealing with that exact reality. Daniel and his friends are taken captive by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. They're put through this three-year Babylonian indoctrination program, and yet we find they still come out the other side faithful to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. In fact, kind of the key text we've been using throughout this is in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, where it says that Daniel, and I think thereby implying his friends, resolves not to defile himself. And so the idea being, if we want to impact or influence a culture that very much disaligns with what we consider to be valuable, how do we go about doing that? Well, it starts with this resolve in our own personal lives not to defile ourselves or not to live by the standard the culture around us sets. So we've talked about how what this looks like is it's not compromising, that we're not letting culture influence us, but instead of compromising, we live into our calling, looking then to influence culture. And last week, we talked about how when we do that, that's bound to create this tension in our lives, that this hope of influencing culture is probably going to draw you to some points where you have to look at an outside world and say, I know you really want me to partake or participate in that, but as a Jesus follower, I'm just not going to do it. That I'm going to not participate in whatever the status quo of culture is. But here's the question. Even if we do all of this, if we resolve and, and we're not going to compromise, and we're going to live into that calling, and we're going uh, to stand to not participate in those types of things, can we expect to change culture? Is that a realistic goal or a realistic expectation? And to answer that question, I think we need to look through Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Whenever I was kind of in middle school, one of the things I would do between my 7th and 8th grade year and my 8th grade year and my freshman year is I went with my dad's church to a mission trip uh, to the Tahana O'odham Indian Reservation in Sells, Arizona. Um, so we would fly into um, Tucson, drive to Sells, and generally what we do is in the morning we would get up, we would do a vacation Bible school, in the afternoon we would do some service projects, and then in the evenings, every single day, there was what they called a crusade at the local Basha's parking lot. You guys know what Basha's is? We don't have those grocery stores around here. I think that's like an Arizona grocery store. But we go to the grocery store parking lot, and there at the pavilion, they would have a band, lead worship, they would have a speaker. Um, now obviously at like 13 years old, I was not able to participate in any of that. So what I was told to do at 13 was to prayer walk around the parking lot for about 15 minutes, 
And then they gave me a bunch of tracks, and they said, just go up to windows and, and try to present these tracks to people. So at 13 years old, uh, I, I was walking up to the windows of these Native American, like elderly people, and as a 13-year-old white kid trying to present the gospel to them. Most of the time, I got instantly shut down, like, leave me alone. Every so often, I would actually be able to get through it, and I would get to the end of my presentation, uh, and, and like the track told me to do, I would say, would you like to pray after me and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And sometimes I would have people say yes. Now, looking back, prayerfully, yes, hopefully God used that in some incredible way. I understand that. I really hope that. But I think more likely was that if I say yes, will this 13-year-old white boy leave me alone? Sure, let me repeat after you. Go away from my car, please, and never come back. I think that was more of the tone. So I remember after I got back from home that year, wondering, like, was that effective? Was that not effective? I'm not really sure. I don't know how to rationale all of that out. And so the next year I went back, I was really worried about how I was going to deal with all of that. Um, Now, that was the end of my eighth grade year going into my freshman year. You have to understand this was before TikTok. So, like, what did kids do? I don't know. I, had a, I did have a phone, but it wasn't like a smartphone. So uh, what we did at that time, what was really popular, is we played hacky sack. That was, I don't know, that was just what was really popular that year. And I got really, I would challenge anyone in here to a game of hacky sack, and I still think I could win. Like, I'm that confident in hacky sacking. So see me after the service if you want to try that. We'll see. Um, anyway, so I got really, really good at hacky sacking. So that year, uh, we, we got there, I got to the crusade that night, I'm stressed out because I really don't want to go to car to car, but I have this pocket full of tracks and it's what I'm supposed to do. So I do my prayer walking and as I'm prayer walking, I see at the corner of the Bosch's grocery store, these three kind of guys about my age playing hacky sack. I'm like, well, I know what I'm going to do tonight. And every night, I can get out of this of doing anything by just going and playing hacky sack with those guys. So every single night, instead of doing what I was supposed to do and going and knocking on, like, car windows and, like, can I have a few minutes to talk to you? I just went and played hacky sack with these guys because apparently their parents worked at the grocery store and they had to stay there until their parents got off work. So we would sit around and we would hacky sack. And it felt like every single night, I would get done and there would be something that would happen that someone would be like, oh, how many gospel conversations did you have tonight? Like, well, I played hacky sack tonight, so zero? I don't like it was like this conviction setting in. Everyone else is talking about I had 35 gospel conversations, I had six gospel conversations, and I played hacky sack. And so I remember getting to the final night, and God just kind of wrecking me, saying, Philip, are you ever actually gonna be on a mission trip or are you just here to play hacky sack all summer? And so I, that night I, I built up the courage to kind of look at these guys and say, Hey, I've really not told you guys why I'm really here. I'm here on a mission trip with my church, and we're really here to tell you about Jesus. And I don't know, you guys may not be interested at all, but if you're interested, I would love to talk more about that with you. I would love to talk more about that with you. And um, they all looked at me and said, absolutely not. We're not interested in that at all. And so I kind of went about the rest of my time. And about 15 minutes before time to go, I'm getting ready, stacking up chairs. And one of those boys... I say boys, he was my age. He comes up to me and goes, hey, that thing you were talking about, I would like to talk a little bit more about it. Can we talk? So we get off to the side, and, and we're, again, hacky sacking. And I look down, and I realize this hacky sack that I had brought with me from Tennessee actually has the colors of salvation on it. Like it has the, the red, the black, the white, that, that whole thing. And so I use that as a tool to talk as we're having a conversation. And I get to the point, and I say, so I don't know what that means for you, man, but if, if you would like to, you know, give your life to Jesus, I, I would love to be a part of that. 
And that's the first time in my life, 14 years old, that I have the distinct memory of leading someone to Jesus. And it didn't feel, I'm not saying the year prior was fruitless and frivolous and not worth it. God can absolutely do stuff like that. But I know that moment, I can't tell you that, boy, that guy's name. If he was in a lineup, I probably couldn't pick him out. But I know for a fact that kid gave his life to Jesus that night. And so I'm left wondering, well, what is it that makes it, when we talk to people about Jesus, effective versus what is it that doesn't make that effective? Because there was something for me more effective about the conversation I had with him, something more connecting, something more personal that I didn't have with any of the people the year before when I knocked on doors from car to car. Because I think if we were to break down Daniel 4 and 5, or as today, as we break down Daniel 4 and 5, what we find is if we're going to be resolved exiles, it demands that we communicate truth effectively. That's part of being a resolved exile is that we tap into God's truth and we communicate that effectively. And I think there's kind of two schools of thought of what that means. Um, you, you have your thought that is, hey, just go out there and saturate as many people as possible with as many gospel conversations as possible. Go car to car, knock on windows, say, hey, do you, if you die tonight, where will you spend eternity? And have those conversations, hoping that with enough saturation, we might actually catch a fish or two. It's just going out, casting the line, and hoping. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But I think for many of you, if you've participated in something like that, every so often you'll have this really amazing experience. But anybody that's been fishing knows there's also those days that you leave fishing and you think, I just wasted time today. And so what we've done then sometimes is we pull that pendulum back all the way over here and we say, well, we don't really like that method. Because let's be honest, if I said, all right, guys, today, Sunday evening, we're going to meet up on the square, and we're going to go house to house, door to door, and we're going to just ask people, if they died tonight, where would they spend eternity? Not, not being judgmental, but I don't imagine many of you would show up to that. I don't know if I would show up to that. It, it's scary. And so what we do is we say, well, if that's the type of evangelism that there is to be done, and that's what it means to communicate truth effectively, I really don't want to participate in that. And so we back ourselves away and in effect, we don't communicate truth at all. We come to church, we play our roles as Christians, but we never participate in what God would have us to participate in. So what does it mean to communicate truth effectively? Now, Daniel 4 and 5 are told in parallel to each other. Uh, so what I'm going to try to do is summarize both stories, because in both stories, you're going to find the, the same kind of outline. The king of Babylon is living in pride and comfort and pleasure. There's some divine intervention on behalf of God that's some encrypted yet undeniable means that transforms their comfort, their pleasure into anxiety and fear that causes that king to start searching for some sort of explanation. Both kings then only find that answer in the exiled Daniel who interprets that dream or that vision on behalf of them. He communicates truth to them and then gives them a chance to respond. And that's where both stories kind of diverge and you're supposed to contrast the ending of both of these stories. So there's a lot of text. I don't have enough time to read through it all, but I'm going to do my best to accurately summarize the text and weave in uh, some key verses along the way. And actually, I have a chart that if you want to follow along, it's on the back of your bulletin. It'll be on the screen uh, that you can follow along with me. 
So let's start in chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins, it's a really fascinating part of Scripture. I know that text is really small, so if you can't read it, use your bulletin. You should be able to read it there. Uh, Chapter 4 is a really interesting passage of Scripture because while we believe most of Daniel is written by Daniel, chapter 4 is addressed by Nebuchadnezzar. So it starts out, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, language who live on the whole earth. This, this passage more reads like a royal letter from the king to be sent throughout his land, recounting the testimony of how he's come to trust the God of Israel rather than the gods of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar begins writing, and he starts at this point of pride and comfort and pleasure. And we'll talk in greater detail about this pride situation because it's a major theme. But just for now, notice how he talks about his life in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I don't know if you've ever had a day like that. I'm at ease in my house and flourishing. But that's what he says. Other translations say, I was at rest and things were going well. I was safe and content. I was comfortable and enjoying prosperity. King Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, has quite literally achieved the pinnacle of power in the known world, only shared by like a half dozen elite people throughout the history of humanity. He was at the point of leadership that he had so conquered the known world, there were no more threatening armies, there was no threat of downside. In fact, if you jump over to chapter 5, as Daniel's kind of summarizing the life of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 19, Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar killed anyone he wanted, and he kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted, and he humbled anyone he wanted. Nebuchadnezzar is at the pinnacle of power. He controls anything and everything And yet it's in the midst of that comfort and that pleasure that he has a dream that utterly wrecks him. There's a lot of commentary to be made, I think, about this idea that our our culture communicates that if we can just gain more control, if we can gain more power, and if we can influence more things, if we could just live at ease and flourishing in our houses, then we would all be happy And yet it keeps crashing down into anxiety. This is exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar as he has a dream. Look at verse 5. I had a dream, and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So he has this dream that he can't understand, and he's anxious, and he's worried about it. And so he, he searches for someone to come and explain the dream to him. He finally lands on Daniel because no one else can do it. So he asks Daniel what's going on and gives Daniel the dream. In his dream, he sees this giant tree whose canopy is covering the entire earth. And then all of a sudden, an angel or a messenger comes down from heaven and chops down the tree. Cuts off all the branches, strips the tree of its leaf, and scatters the fruit throughout the world, leaving only just a stump behind So Daniel hears this dream from Nebuchadnezzar, and then in verse 19, he looks at it, and it's a really interesting response. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, that's his Babylonian name given to him after the exile, Daniel was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king said, Belshazzar, don't let this dream or its interpretation alarm you. Daniel has this reckoning moment where he recognizes it's about to be his job to communicate truth to this king who has, in effect, killed anyone who's ever challenged his authority. And Daniel's now in a position where he has no choice but to challenge the king's authority. So he's fearful. 
Now, luckily, the king gives him some reassurance, and Daniel goes on to give the interpretation of the dream, explaining that the tree represents King Nebuchadnezzar and his coming downfall if he doesn't repent. So in verse 27 of chapter 4, as Daniel's talking, he says, Therefore, after he gives the interpretation of the dream, may my advice seem good to you for my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right. And from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy, perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Daniel essentially looks at him and says, King, you're going to have to give some things up. You're going to have to change some ways that you live life. Now, we're not told what happens after that conversation. We're going to get into how the king responds. But if you look at the very next verse, in verse 28, it says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, and then 29, at the end of 12 months. So it seems like they have this conversation, Daniel fades back into the background, and Nebuchadnezzar goes an entire other year having done nothing with Daniel's interpretation for his dream. King Nebuchadnezzar's first response is not a response of repentance, it's a response of leaning in heavier to his own ability, pride, power, and flourishing. Because what he's going to say then, as he continues on in verse 29, is that as he's walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not the Babylon the great that I have built to be my royal residency of my vast power and majestic glory? That Nebuchadnezzar looks around in his pride and he says, Look at everything I've built, all that I am capable of. I am the most powerful man in the world, and this is nothing but good that I have done. And the Bible says that it's while he's saying that, that God strikes him down. He chops the tree down from the vision. It's a rather interesting passage because verse 31 says, While the words were still coming out of the king's mouth, a voice from heaven said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from its people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge the Most High as ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants." Nebuchadnezzar's first response is one of rejection. God then drives Nebuchadnezzar to the mind of an animal, quite literally. Nebuchadnezzar lives for seven periods of time, for whatever that means, uh, as an animal. And then finally, he looks back to God, and he repents. Verse 34, but at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. And then we get to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the exact same story, pretty much, with a different ending. So we start, well, let me backtrack. There's a lot of history that happens between Nebuchadnezzar and this new king mentioned in chapter 5, King Belshazzar. So the the Bible's going to read that King Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son, and that is his son in kingship, but there are a couple generations removed from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. I say that because some people will do their history and they'll be like, well, the Bible is lying. It's not accurate. The Bible is accurate, but it's not interesting itself in the history of Babylon. It's interesting itself in the King Belshazzar. And so the way that story goes, there's a lot to it. But as Nebuchadnezzar dies, the kingdom kind of devolves into this soap opera complete with assassinations and betrayals and all this stuff. And years later, this guy named Belshazzar takes power after having his own father politically removed from power by manipulating this conflict between the high priest of Babylon and the king of Babylon. It just kind of tells you what kind of guy this Belshazzar character is. And again, it opens up on this story where he is living in lavish comfort and pleasure. 
And while this is a different type of pride, it's still this level of pride of a pursuit of pleasure. So Belshazzar held a great feast for thousands of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and wives and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. There's this this image of him just living life to the fullest of what he would think. That life is all about what he can get from it. And then there's the intentional act of God that takes the, the comfort and pleasure and transforms it to anxiety. A disembodied hand shows up and starts writing on the wall in some language no one can understand. And if you look at verse 6, it's really interesting because it says, His Belshazzar's face turned pale, and his thoughts were so terrified uh, his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. If you'd like to know uh, the King James Version, it says that the joints of his loins were loosened. So if you're a creative writer and you're trying to write about how someone got scared, feel free to use the joints of his loins were loosened. It's a great phrase for that. So he freaks out. He starts searching. He calls wise men. No one can help him. Finally, he has to find Daniel. Daniel comes in. And the king suggests in verse 8, so all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make the interpretation known to him. And Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned even more pale. He begins to offer the highest honor possible to anyone that could interpret the dream. So Daniel comes in, and I love Daniel's response to this. Because Daniel critiques him. And he essentially explains all the problems that Belshazzar faces in the exact same way that Nebuchadnezzar faced this pride. And he says in verse 22, But you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord, and the vessels of his house were brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and concubines drank the wine from them, and you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. He gives the interpretation of this writing on the wall, verse 26. This is the interpretation. Mini means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance of found and found deficient. And Peres means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And rather than turning around and praising God, Belshazzar praises Daniel. He rewards Daniel and yet is still unwilling to submit himself to the power of God of Israel and rather tries to maintain that power to solve his problem. And the story ends with verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple and clothed him uh, with a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Two stories, incredibly similar in nature and theme with vastly different endings, so what does all of this have to do with living in exile and changing culture? And I want to talk about this through kind of three movements, what I'm going to call the animal, the exile, and the agent. The animal, the exile, the agent. So let's start with the animal. Each of these stories begins with a human 
living in their humanity and then having that humanity wrecked by their own pride. Now, it's not a surprise to us. The Bible is in constant critique of the prideful. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. But that demands the question, what what is pride? And I think at some points, we we just kind of land that pride is arrogance, that it's thinking a little too highly of yourself. And that is an accurate definition of pride, but it doesn't get to the heart of pride because it's actually pride that is at the heart of every single sin committed. Because what pride is, is the desire or the expectation to assume the position of God. That actually, I don't trust God knows what's best. I trust that I know what's best. So rather than allowing him to define what's right and wrong, what's good or evil, what's good for my life, I'm going to define it for myself. This is the foundational sin of the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. That God says, hey, here's the tree of life, of knowledge of, sorry, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but do not eat from that tree. Instead, trust me to be the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, tempted by the serpent, decide that they would rather trust their own knowledge than follow God. And from then on out, this is the pattern of sin within us, that we would desire for more personal control rather than trusting in God's control And it wrecks us. Pride is the cancer within Nebuchadnezzar's heart when he looks across his empire and he says, is this not Babylon that I have built? I mean, the royal residency that by my vast power has come into existence. It's Nebuchadnezzar saying, I've worked for this and I deserve this. And it destroys him. And it's the same as Belshazzar's heart as he looks at his possessions and he decides, life's about me getting what's mine and being happy, and I deserve to feel good. And it's this cancer of pride which eats away at their humanity and begins to turn them into animals. Now, obviously that's far more exaggerated in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Because it's Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to become more than what God made him, which actually results in the opposite. He becomes less, and that's the irony of pride. The reality that actually the more we strive for control and credit, the more we descend into insanity and chaos. Because for Nebuchadnezzar, this isn't just some arbitrary punishment God comes up with on a whim that says, well, you've been prideful, so I'm going to have you go live like a goat for a while. See you, man but it's actually the intentional extension of his pride that God says, this is where your pride's leading you, so I'm gonna go go ahead and let it consume you. And I'll show you in the world what it actually looks like. Because pride takes people's humanity and turns them into animals. How does it do that? Well, two things, pride kills empathy. And empathy is an innately human concept. The ability to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, that's not something other animals really do. Now I get it. You're like, well, but my dog comes and he encourages me and he loves me and he gives me hugs and he makes me feel better when I'm feeling sad. He might do that. But if he's anything like my dog, he's only doing it because he's really hoping you're going to give him some of the food on your plate. Like, yeah, he loves you, but he's not rejoicing with those who rejoice or weeping with those who weep. He's a dog. See, animals don't have the ability to empathize, and pride will kill your ability to empathize. Because all of a sudden, I've worked hard for this. 
This belongs to me. And those people over there, that they didn't work as hard, so they don't deserve any of my empathy. Or you might actually be one of the people over here that's saying, I have worked so hard and have never had anything turn my way. All those people over there, they've done nothing but get lucky. And it destroys your ability to empathize. Pride will kill your ability to empathize, and pride will kill your joy. Another core facet of being human is the experience of joy despite satisfaction, that even when you don't have what you feel that you need, you can still experience joy. See, an animal can feel satisfaction, but only under the right circumstances. But they cannot rejoice in tribulation. That is a uniquely human attribute. Empathy, joy, these are all vital parts of living in the image of God, and pride dismantles them by turning humans into mere animals. It's the constant search for more power and control that ruins Nebuchadnezzar, and the search for more satisfaction and pleasure that ruins Belshazzar. So what's the hope? As more and more people seem to be stricken with pride falling deeper and deeper into this insanity, is there some solution to stop the chaos? And this is where we get to the exile, the animal, the exile. Remember, we've been using the word exile in a broader sense here than just the Babylonian captivity. Exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien or or maybe even a hostile in an environment where the dominant values run opposed to one's held values. Now, that's all fancy talk just to say. Exile is when the things you hold dear and true stand in opposition to greater culture. And that can feel daunting, that can feel exhausting, that can feel scary. But it's actually that position that allows exile to stand out, allows the exile's voice to communicate against the destruction of pride by communicating truth effectively. So what's the role of the exile when unbridled pride is constantly dehumanizing the culture around them? Is the role of the exile to stop that from happening, to put an end to that process? Well, not necessarily. In these two stories, Daniel is not the change agent. Daniel's merely the messenger. His role, even though it's through the supernatural power of the Spirit to interpret the dreams and the writing on the wall, his role is merely to communicate that interpretation to communicate that truth, and then what happens with the rest of the story seems to be not much of his concern. It's amazing in these two stories how quickly Daniel comes to center stage, gives his monologue, and then just fades off into the background without anyone even noticing. That Daniel comes in, gives the interpretation, and it takes Nebuchadnezzar 12 months plus seven periods of living in a wrecked mental state before remembering what Daniel called him to do. That it's Belshazzar that that calls Daniel forward after generations of not even remembering his existence and then still doesn't even listen to him. The text never once asks if Daniel could have communicated that truth better or if he could have tried to push repentance harder or what evangelistic strategy a Daniel could have employed that might have resulted in salvation, but then that's not what it's about. It simply portrays the exile as the communicator of truth in a culture deprived of truth, which leaves us with the agent. Because who is the agent of change in these two stories? Well, it's obviously not the animal. It's not the kings consumed in their own pride because they're far too blind to even see the problem in their own life. And it's actually not the exile. Now, granted, Daniel does have to live in his resolved exile still very intentionally, and he has to go out and communicate. But for Nebuchadnezzar, Change only occurs 
once he looks back to God. In Belshazzar, there is no change. God is the only agent of change in this story, meaning if we are going to change culture, then it will undeniably mean that we must communicate truth effectively. We as a, as a church, we as exiles have to go out in a world and we have to communicate this truth effectively. But when we do that, we still know that it's actually not our job to be the agent of change in the world. We're just the tools the agent of change uses. Because the exact same thing is going on in our world all around us today. Three movements. The animal, the exile, the agent. Pride is still turning people into animals, eroding them down out of their humanity into mere instinct. Because I think both Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, as he's living in content prosperity and still is then wrecked by anxiety, Belshazzar living in pleasure, still susceptible to worry and fear, is an overlay directly with our world today. Because in our modern cultural climate, we have learned to control so much. We feel that we finally have all this control over our lives. And it's destroying us. I mean, think about it. And I'm going to be a little bit silly here, so bear with me, okay? Think about all the things we control. Like, what did you guys do when you used to listen to music? And uh, in order to listen to that one song you, you liked, you actually had to go buy, like, the entire album or cassette tape. How miserable was that, man? Well, I like one song. I guess I'm buying the entire 12 so I can listen to this one. No, no, no. Nowadays, we get to control more than that. So I can actually go and I can curate the playlist exactly like I want it. And I'm not saying that's sinful. I'm just using that as a silly analogy to point out how much we actually control. Because it goes way deeper than that in our world culture. In fact, our, our culture is inviting people over and over again to control as much as they can possibly control. It's all about you and what you want. So control the music you listen to, control the content you watch, control the way you dress, control the gender you identify as. It's all something that can be controlled in our current cultural climate. And pride tells us that the more we control, it's actually the happier and more satisfied we become. But we look around and what's happening to the world around us, it's descending into anxiety and depression and worry because it turns out you actually don't need more control. That's the irony. You need less. That humanity is actually found in surrender, not in control. This is what, what I've uh, deemed through reading and studying this, the ironic pendulum of pride. It goes something like this. Take, take the young college girl. That, that she has spent her entire life feeling like she never has measured up socially to the girls around her. And so she finally finds that YouTube video that's going to teach her to curate her makeup and wear uh, the cutest clothes in a way that no one else could ever imagine. Finally, she has the means of controlling and earning the attention that she feels like she needs. And so she does her makeup, and she puts on those clothes curated by that one YouTube channel, and she goes to the party only to find every other girl there looks and is dressed just like her. And that's the irony of pride. 
that she swings back into this self-crisis of saying, well, if this is not where I can find control and identity in my life, I have to look somewhere else. Now, historically, that's where the gospel is able to invade and communicate, no, 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 you don't need to control, you need to surrender, and God can give you the purpose you so desire. Now, here's the problem we face in a world as complex as ours. Because when that comes crashing back down, where's the first place she retreats to? Well, it's to the Google search tab that says how to find purpose in life. And so instead of doing makeup tutorials on YouTube, she's going to take up goat yoga. I don't, isn't that a thing where you do yoga with, like, goats? And, like, that's going to become her thing. And then that doesn't work out. She'll move to Tokyo to try to start a new life there. And when that doesn't work, and we just keep swinging on this pendulum of pride and irony and all the while just drowning in depression and anxiety. This is the animal that is eating our culture alive. So what's the job? The job falls to the exile. Now, is it our job to totally stop that? Maybe in a way, but it's not our job to force that change. It's our job to communicate truth effectively in the midst of that pendulum. How how do we do that? Well, we pray for God to create an open door moment where that truth can be heard. God, I really didn't like going and knocking on every single door and window of those cars, but I know that I need to communicate truth like you've called me to on this mission trip. Can you make that happen? And God says, I can, but you're going to have to be willing to listen. Here's a hacky sack. Here's three guys to talk to. Now, when you do that, understand this. That doesn't mean the anxiety goes away. It doesn't mean that you look at that and it's just nothing but sheer confidence. When Daniel hears Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he is shaken. That's what the Bible says. He's shocked. And yet God says, I still need you to be the communicator of truth here. Fear is not the indicator of effective truth. You can still communicate in fear. In fact, I would imagine that every time God calls you to communicate truth, you're probably going to be fearful. But do it anyways. You might be saying, well, what if they don't listen? And that's where we get back to the agent. You are not the agent of change in the world. God is the agent of change. But he wants to use you. He wants to use you to reach your family. He wants to use you to reach your coworkers. But it all comes back to this reminder of the gospel that he is actually the one that initiates change because he is the one that sought us first in his love by coming as man, living a perfect life, and then giving that life up on the cross to redeem us of our sins. He is the agent of change. It's our job just to be effective communicators. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for us? The reality is, guys, for Talos, the culture, we should absolutely pray for God to be doing some things that are going to come in and be very intentional movements of God. But do not expect the culture to change if you're not willing to go say anything. It won't. Now, I also don't mean by, so go out and just blitz the culture in a way that's rude and threatening and like ninja starring Bible tracks down people's throats. That's not it either. But it's coming to God and saying, God, we trust that you're going to be providing opportunities, even this afternoon, that might be places to effectively communicate truth for you. And I understand that it might make me scared and it might make me feel anxious, but God, I trust that if you're calling me to it, you will make it effective. Where do I communicate truth effectively? And maybe that needs to be your prayer. God, where in my life this week do I communicate truth effectively? Who do I talk to? 
Make me aware of that. And maybe you've never known that because you've never even known truth. You're still too busy trying to grasp at power, and you're on, you, you hear that story of the pendulum swing, and you're like, that's the fair ride that I'm on, and I really want off of it. Then God is inviting you to surrender your life, your identity, your everything to him, and saying, I can give you more. So wherever you are, maybe this is a chance for you to pray, to come talk to me. I would love to pray with you. How do we communicate truth effectively?